new series last week uh, entitled Refocus, thinking about some different areas that I think we need to emphasize as we get started into a new year. Uh, we thought last week about the value of relationships in the church. Uh, today, we're going to think about the value of discipleship in the church, and then I'm going to follow that with the value of outreach, generosity, and priorities in the church. Our text is going to be from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. So if you want to turn there, I'll be there in just a moment. Stuart Briscoe pointed out that in the days in which our Lord lived and ministered in making disciples, that the Greeks were into the concept of schools of thought. So within these schools of thought, teachers would gather groups of disciples with the idea of imparting a particular philosophy or a specific school of thought. The key word was disciple, and the main idea was a relationship. Further, the Jews had a certain approach to discipleship. They paired themselves together, and they prided themselves on being disciples of Moses and the law of God. The Pharisees had their disciples John the Baptist had his disciples. And I say all that to say there's no shortage of illustrations about discipleship in the time of Jesus. A disciple at the most basic level is a learner or a follower. At the heart of discipleship is a faith relationship with Jesus Christ because he calls us to come and to follow him. Making disciples is at the heart of the Great Commission, Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Who specifically is a disciple of Jesus? Well, I want to give you a basic definition here as well with a little bit more context and content than just the basic one that I gave you of a disciple. So listen carefully. A disciple of Jesus is a person who has repented of their sins and trust in Jesus by faith, who follows his teachings, bears spiritual fruit, and makes disciples of others. Let me state that again for emphasis. A disciple of Jesus is a person who has repented of their sins and trusts in Jesus by faith, who follows his teachings bears spiritual fruit, and makes disciples of others. Now, it's interesting that the term disciple in one form or the other is used 230 times in the Gospels. We find it another 28 times in Acts to refer to followers of Jesus. This is a central focus of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be the church, saved by the blood of Jesus, following the teachings of Jesus, and reaching other people for him. Begin reading here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm just going to read these first two verses, though I'll make reference to a few that follow in the message as we move forward. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy had begun traveling with Paul and Silas as a young man after they came to Lystra on their second missionary journey. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And although he was free in Christ, he submitted himself to be circumcised so that as they began to minister and encounter religious Jews along the way, he would not be an offense to them as they spread the gospel. The relationship between Paul and Timothy grew to the point that Paul referred to Timothy as my son in the faith. Paul discipled Timothy as he grew in wisdom and in his faith. Paul addressed two books in the New Testament to Timothy, who at that point was pastoring the church at Ephesus. In these few moments that we have together, I want to share with you three aspects of discipleship from these verses. And in doing so, challenge you to think about your relationship with Jesus. Three aspects about discipleship and challenge you to think about your relationship with Jesus. The first aspect is that discipleship is anchored in grace. You'll note the admonition here, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is defined as God's unmerited favor. It indicates the favor of God, the blessing of God, and the kindness of God. And grace means that God freely forgives us, and he gives us eternal life as a gift of faith. He does not give us grace for anything that we have done. It is all of him. Grace means that God chooses to bless us rather than curse us, which is what our sin ultimately deserves. But I think sometimes we don't understand the magnitude or perhaps the extent of the grace that God has given to us in Christ. We don't even know what we have. Five years ago, a Massachusetts buyer purchased a drawing at an estate sale. In this drawing that he purchased, he only paid $30. Turns out it was an original drawing by the Renaissance master, Albrecht Dürer. The piece is entitled, The Virgin and Child with a Flower on a Grassy Bench. International art experts gathered at a British museum recently to discuss it. And they concluded that it would sell at auction on the market Watch this, for as much as $50 million. Now, all of you who love the yard sales and you love the secondhand stuff, wouldn't you love to find something that you paid just a little bit for and it turns out to be worth tens of millions of dollars? But what God has done for us in the gospel is even more profound because God gives us the eternal life as a gift. It's infinitely valuable. And though it was costly to him, he offers it to us for free. But do we understand the extent of the grace that God has given us in Christ Jesus? God's grace is at the heart of the gospel. I would say that the Christian is saved by grace. We serve by grace 
and we are sustained by grace. When we are in need, God invites us to come to his throne and to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. We are told to fix our hope completely on the grace that is to be revealed in the return of Jesus Christ. And even the last verse of the Bible in Revelation 22 and verse 21 says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. As Paul addresses Timothy, he says, you. This is a direct and a personal address. Therefore, links the verses to the exhortations and the examples of endurance and also uh, the warning against falling away. And Paul was a man who was constantly under attack by the Judaizers. Remember, they were twisting the teaching to confuse people, to make them think that a person could only be saved if they followed after the law of Moses. So Paul builds up to this point, and what he does is he repeatedly emphasizes the gospel. He reminds Timothy of his conversion and what happened to him. He encourages him not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord and to join in suffering for the gospel. So Paul's idea is, in light of the gospel message, if you want to endure and you want to use your gifts for the glory of God, then you must be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. As disciples, we live the Christian life by grace, and we do it in the power of God. And in the verses that follow, Paul provides three examples of what being strong in grace looks like. He first gives the example of the soldier in verse 4. The strong soldier is focused on pleasing the one who has called him into service. Our commander is Jesus Christ and his disciples. We need not get entangled in the affairs of this life and get distracted from who we are following. So if we're going to be strong in grace, that means that we've got to have a singleness of purpose in life. The second example that he gives is that of an athlete in verse 5. The strong athlete is self-disciplined and strives for the prize that he hopes to obtain in the future. As disciples, we compete according to the commandments of Jesus. We abide by the guidelines that he has given us. And it requires self-discipline in doing so. The third example is the farmer in verse 6. The strong farmer is going to plant seeds and see a harvest. So as disciples, we plant seeds in the lives of others. And God blesses us to see the results. But hard work is involved. Diligence is involved. And to be strong means that we are absolutely in reliance on the power of God. We are not in reliance on our own natural ability. But as we anchor ourselves down in that grace, we're going to serve the Lord. And we are going to be anchored in grace, understanding that God is at work through us. A singleness of purpose a self-discipline to our lives, and a diligence in how we serve. That's the first aspect. The second aspect is that discipleship imparts sound doctrine. He says here, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men. 
Now, context is important, and I think the primary application to this verse is for pastors and church leaders specifically, but it more broadly applies to every Christian. What you have heard from me, he says. When God entrusts truth to us, it's so that we as his disciples might live by it and impart it to others. It's not that we're to hold on to it for ourselves. So think about it this way. To be strong in grace is the foundation of discipleship. And to impart sound doctrine is to build on the foundation. What Timothy had heard Paul teach, he was instructed to teach others. Titus 2 and verse 1 says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, I think you know enough to know that people are confused in the age that we live in. They're confused about spiritual matters. They're confused about worldview. They're confused about the basics of what Christianity even is. And one of Lifeway Research's most recent studies showed just how confused people are. And I share this with you not as a surprise particularly, but I share it with you simply to say, we have a challenge before us. If we're going to be the church in the age that we live in, with all of these competing ideas and all of these competing philosophies, and the depths of darkness in which we reside, we've got to understand the challenge that is in front of us. Lifeway Research found that 54% of Americans say that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. 12% more are unsure. That makes two-thirds of the people surveyed who believe that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. 72% of people surveyed believe in the Trinity, but 55% of the 72% believe that Jesus Christ is a created being, which of course is not true. 34% believe that modern science completely disproves the Bible. This is the challenge in front of us if we're going to impart sound doctrine. For more than two decades, the Barna Group has been tracking the percentage of people who have a biblical worldview uh, by generation. And essentially what they've done is they've taken some just core beliefs about uh, the Bible and about the Christian faith, and they filtered that to say when they ask people what they believe to determine do they have a worldview that is consistent with the Bible. Now, two things about this particular study. As the years and the decades have progressed, the number of people in general has gone down who have a biblical worldview. But more specifically, they found recently that 10% of boomers have a biblical worldview. 7% of Generation X have a biblical worldview. 6% of millennials and only 4% of Gen Z. So not only is it decreasing collectively, but generationally as we proceed, the numbers are even lower. If we are going to make disciples in this type of environment, we have to be strong in grace 
and we have to be strong in sound doctrine. Now, strong in sound doctrine is based on God who has revealed himself to us. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment as a progression of how God has revealed himself to us. We know God because God is a self-revealing God. That's, that's how we know him. We would not know him otherwise had he not revealed himself to us. And he has revealed himself to the world through creation. So we speak in that in terms of uh, g- general revelation. Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Sound doctrine is based on God's word, which is special revelation. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. And then sound doctrine is based on God's son. So now this is ultimate revelation. Hebrews 1 and verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And then sound doctrine is based on the specific message about Jesus. The gospel. The life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 three and four, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So we have general revelation. We have special revelation in the word. We have the ultimate revelation in the living word. And then we have the specific message of the gospel that comes out of that. To impart sound doctrine, we have to believe that there is sound doctrine. And and I'm here to tell you that there is an identifiable body of truth that can be known because God has revealed it to us. And this identifiable body of truth that can be known is to be shared with others. And a quality we should look for when imparting sound doctrine, a quality that we should emulate as we impart sound doctrine, is faithfulness. That's identified here in the scripture. Faithfulness as a gift from God. To be faithful means to be reliable and steadfast and unwavering. Faithful people do what is right and true, and they do what they've been entrusted to do. I think about Nehemiah in the Old Testament When he had to leave Jerusalem and return to Persia, he put people in charge for a specific reason, according to Nehemiah 7, because they were more faithful and God-fearing than many. Nehemiah needed people of character whom he could trust. Nehemiah needed people who had integrity, who would carry out their responsibilities that had been given to them. Now, here's the blessing for us, at least most of us. God doesn't require smart people to impart sound doctrine. He doesn't require popular people to impart sound doctrine. He doesn't require perfect people. He doesn't require beautiful people, though he can use all those as well, whatever the case might be. God uses faithful people. And that's what we want to be. Now, if I were to ask you, uh, just give me two or three names in the scripture of people that you would like to emulate, 98% of you would probably give a name that 
the rest of the church people would basically recognize. It'd be the big names that we're familiar with. But if you read scripture carefully, you will find time and time again, names of people who are essentially unknown, but yet they were faithful. Tychicus in Ephesians 6 is described as a faithful minister in the Lord. Epaphras in Colossians is described as a faithful minister. Onesimus is described as a faithful brother. And what we should seek to be as the people of God imparting this sound doctrine is faithful. And God help us not just to be faithful for a while. God help us to finish as faithful people. To finish as faithful people. Discipleship imparts sound doctrine. And then the third aspect is that discipleship results in multiplication. Scripture says here, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now this word commit is a verb related to a noun that means a deposit. Back in chapter 1 and verse 14, he said, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. And with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. The idea is to entrust your valuable treasure to a trusted friend to guard it for you during your absence. So in discipleship, we have entrusted our lives to Christ and he has entrusted the precious treasure of the gospel to us and we need to be faithful with it. But if we're going to be faithful with it, discipleship takes time. It takes our surrender It requires teachable people, but don't miss the result. The result is multiplication. Now, I think if I'm reading this right here in 2 Timothy 2, that there are basically four movements of people or what we might call generations of people who are referred to in a very short amount of text. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others whom they teach. So we have a description here of how the multiplication takes place. Now to illustrate this, uh, the preacher R. Kent Hughes relayed the story of several men from history who had been influential in each other's lives through their writings particularly and how that had impacted the world. He relayed the story of Richard Sibbs who wrote a small book about Christ entitled The Bruised Reed in the early 17th century. A copy of that book fell into the hands of a tin peddler who gave it to a boy named Richard Baxter, who became the greatest of the Puritan pastors. Baxter wrote, among other things, A Call to the Unconverted, which Philip Doddridge read in the early 18th century, And he, in turn, wrote The Rise and the Progress of Religion in the Soul. William Wilberforce read Philip Doddridge's book, and it so changed his life that he would lead the fight for the abolition of slavery. And Wilberforce was a huge influence 
in 19th century culture, and he saw the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade just three days before his death. And even today, William Wilberforce has inspired many in the modern age who care about the lives of others and who want to be a blessing in this regard as well. Truth multiplies, but here's the problem. So does heresy. So does false teaching. It multiplies. Just as Paul dealt with the opponents of the Judaizers and the false teachers who were coming in, who were wolves, who desired the destruction of the church rather than the building up of the church. We have this challenge before us as well, and that's why we need faithful disciples. And I want you to think just for a moment about the multiplication of the gospel and of the disciples. We're going to do some simple math. It's not math class, but we're going to do just a little bit of math. Jesus started with 12 disciples, one of whom betrayed him. Today, 2.2 billion people in the world claim Christianity in one form or the other. It is estimated that there are around 700 million of the 2.2 billion who are evangelical Christians. Now, only the Holy Spirit knows the ultimate and accurate number between the 700 million and the 2.2 billion. We'll leave that to him and we'll be faithful with the gospel. But my point remains, 12 to hundreds of millions or potentially billions in 2,000 years, friends, is a lot of multiplication. That is significant growth. And how has it happened? It has happened through the making of disciples. And that is because discipleship results in multiplication. It's up to God how he adds to his church and how he multiplies the work. But it's up to us whether or not we're faithful in who he's called us to be and what he's called us to do in the making of disciples. I want to draw your attention to two more verses before I close. In Colossians 1 and verse 28 and 29. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Don't miss this part. So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. The goal of discipleship is maturity in Christ. That's the point of the whole thing. So I'm going to ask you three questions and I'm going to close. Question number one, are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you repented of your sins and come to follow Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Are Are you a disciple of Jesus? If you're not, today would be a good day to become a disciple of Jesus and to answer that call to come and to follow him. If you'd be willing to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ by faith, he'll save you. He'll give you the gift of eternal life and you can be his disciple. Question number two, is there fruit evident in your life that you are growing in maturity in Christ? Is there fruit evident in your life that you are growing in maturity in Christ? We ought to be praying for this and asking the Lord to 
grow us in the likeness of Christ and to produce that fruit for his glory, not for ours. And then question number three, are you imparting what you know to others? Are you sharing that simple yet profound and beautiful message of the gospel that Jesus saves? Are you making disciples through sound doctrine and imparting what you know to others? In our church, we are committed to faithful teaching of the word of God and the sharing of the gospel down the street and around the world. One of the primary and most practical ways that we seek to make disciples is through our Bible fellowship ministry. As we connect people together in relationships, we want to help them grow in their faith. Obviously, everything we do collectively contributes to this. The preaching, teaching time, and the worship time, the proclamation of the gospel through the elements, all those things contribute to this. But I want to challenge you in the year to come that if you are living as what you see yourself as a disciple, but you're trying to do it independently... That's not how God designed you. That's not New Testament discipleship. He wants you to grow together with other believers toward maturity in Christ. And he's given us everything that we need to do it. Abundant grace, sound doctrine, and the opportunity to implement what we know. And we want to be faithful in doing it. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Pastor Eric's going to come and sing a closing song with us, and then I want to make a couple of concluding remarks as we wrap up our service. But I want you to know that I'll be here as the service uh, concludes, and I'd love to talk with you, pray with you, answer any questions you might have, or maybe you're ready to take that, you're ready to take that step of faith. Um, I'll be glad to help you and pray with you any way that I can. But I want us to just reflect for a moment on the subject that's before us. Are we faithful disciples? And are we making disciples as effectively as we could be as the body of Christ here at Cross Lanes Baptist Church? God, we thank you today that we can, by faith, be called your children through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, we want to be faithful. A lot of times we get in our own way. We sin, we do things that aren't helpful or unholy. And yet that same grace that we were saved with abundantly washes over our lives so that our relationship with you is not hindered. I pray, Father, that we would see not just the adding of people in the life of this church, but we would see the multiplication of disciples here and to the ends of the earth. And in all things, may the name of Jesus and his glory be exalted. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.